I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear buddhist is not in our stars but in ourselves good luck we care about your world stay tuned my guest is leanne domash She's a psychotherapist in practice in New York City. She's a playwright and author of a wonderful new book, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. Leanne, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. So today we're going to talk about embodied imagination and the dream work of Robert Bosnack. Thank you, Antonio. So I thought since I don't really feel comfortable, you know, like working on one of your dreams, I could always give examples from the book of dreams, if you want that. Yeah, definitely. From the book or from whatever source. Okay, great, great. You know, this is strange for me, talking on the radio versus talking to a client in private. I'm mm -hmm. so familiar with that process. And with the client, you're kind of in charge Yep. But in an interview, you're not in charge. Mm -hmm. In a way, you are and you aren't. It's true also with the, I mean, this gets back to the potter and his clay. Mm -hmm. It's true It's true with the patient, too. You think you're in charge, but you're really not in charge either. Right. So it's like kind of a mutual endeavor. And, you know, eventually the client decides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it seems like the client is in the driver's seat because the client can choose to open up and fully engage or not. Yeah, yeah. That's a big problem with some patients. You know, they're so well defended and it served them well. And some people can never let you in and others gradually do. And others just take to the process like a fish to water. It has a lot to do with the patient's desire and motivation. Yeah, yeah. You have to have a lot of motivation. Yes, but if there's enough fear, that can really overcome what is initially high motivation. And, you know, I've had this experience. It seems like the people are very motivated, but very quickly their self-protective patterns come into play. 
and you know it can be very difficult especially when they have served them well and every symptom has a real reason for coming into being that was self-protective in some way and to convince people that maybe this is an arena where you can let your guard down is not easy in some cases especially when trauma's been involved yes it gets back to that old thing of better the devil you know than the devil you don't know so that yeah. even, even when you do realize that your life is a total mess at least mm-hmm. you've survived this far and if you yeah, if you really exactly. open up you might not survive even though yeah. your therapist seems safe and and is encouraging mm-hmm. it's still it, it's uh it's dancing on the edge of the unknown and for some people exactly. that is terrifying Exactly. And again, I like Bible stories and Bible analogies. And, you know, there are Israelites who did not want to leave Egypt because they were terrified of going into the unknown of the desert, into the unknown promised land. And then even those who did leave were constantly thinking of rebelling against Moses to go back to Egypt because it was terrifying. That long journey was terrifying. Mm-hmm. So... They would rather face almost death rather than the uncertainty. Yeah. Death is a somewhat known quantity. Yeah. And even though it, it is terrifying, it is sort of a known quantity. Right. And eventually it's an end to suffering, whereas living in uncertainty endlessly is a lot of suffering. So we really have to learn to make friends with uncertainty and, and the unknown. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's hopefully what the therapist can help the patient with because the therapist's containment of the fear and the processing of the anxieties and the narratives that they create for the patient and the patient creates for herself all help reduce the terror. Right. It's always about the narratives, the stories that are running inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And changing them is really hard. First, you have to realize that that's what you're running on, our stories, our old stories. Yeah. Well, sometimes you get so tired of the story that you really have a motivation to change. You know, and that's why I entered the intensive dream work training, because I sensed that I was at a point where the usual pattern was not working. And I felt that I was getting deeper and deeper into weariness and overwork for no real good reason, no creative reason. Let's put it that way. There were reasons, but not creative reasons. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to have the vitality to do something different. Do you mean in your practice? Yeah, I felt that I was working all the time and was getting very tired And not yet burnt out, but just tired and wanted more variety. I wanted to do other things in addition to the clinical work. So it sounds like you weren't really hearing what your your real needs were, but you were sensing that you had needs that were unmet. Yeah, but when I heard Robert Bosnick talk, and this is, I guess, an example of aha thinking or right brain processing, I said, this would help me. I knew it, even though I didn't know what I needed help with exactly. Uh So what was it that you heard from 
Robert Bosnack that turned you on? He is a wonderful teacher. He's very charismatic and very intelligent, and he had a very unusual approach to dream work. I mean, something I hadn't been exposed to. And although it is Jungian nature, he calls it post-Jungian, and he just had a lot of courage. He just asked somebody from the audience for a dream, and they came up in this. It was this little small lecture hall at a psychoanalytic institute. It was an audience of about maybe 40 people, 50 at the most. And this person told the dream, and I just thought it was an astonishing process, and it just seemed to me that it would help you expand. I didn't know anything about the theoretical underpinnings of it or anything, but it just seemed to me that it was a very expansive process. And I wanted to learn how to do this with patients because it seemed like, well, another one of my favorite ideas is that symbols get worn out and tired, that every field needs to reinvent their symbols. And I felt that I needed something new for my therapy work. I still enjoy interpreting dreams in a more traditional way, but I just think we need to constantly refresh our work. And this just seemed like a very creative way to refresh the work. So I'm curious about how symbols get worn out. You know, a lot of our symbols or our ideas are tied to our culture. And, you know, when I first was in training and in psychoanalysis, for example, the concept of penis envy was very common. And I was told when I was ambitious that I had penis envy. Now, looking back on this, this is ludicrous, ludicrous. But this was said with great authority. And I remember being very disturbed at the time and questioning the analyst, but this is really what he believed. And it was very much tied to the culture of the day and was a holdover from even an earlier time when he had been trained. But really, he was saying, you envy men, not because they have penises, but because they have power. Mm -hmm. And now, nobody would dream of saying that to a patient. Nobody. So another example is the neutrality with the patient that I was trained in. I mean, I fear that I may not even have smiled at patients when I first started. I was really told to be a blank slate a neutral figure so they could project onto. But this too is crazy because if you're assuming a very neutral position and not responding, not being responsive, that's really cold. And you're going to elicit a negative feeling or a feeling in the patient that he's not liked. And so there is no such thing as a neutral stance. So that has yielded to a much more relational, mutual kind of experience with the patient where there isn't this separation between the omniscient analyst and the somewhat powerless patient. This has all occurred just in the past few decades. Yes, exactly. So so it's come a long way. Yeah, it has come a long way. But, you know, 75 years from now, there are going to be new ideas and a new society and a new way of understanding things, and these things will shift. 
And also another thing is that we have many more ways to help people now than we did when I was first trained. We have ways of dealing with trauma. We have ways of dealing with addiction. These things were not known when I was trained. So we're enlarging the group of people we can help, but we still can't help everybody. There are people who come into our offices that we do not know how to help or that are very difficult to help. Maybe some gifted people can, but we will gradually learn ways to help them. As we expand our imagination. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting how imagination is such a foundational aspect of all of this. Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, one of the most important uses of imagination for a therapist is for him or her to use their imagination and free associative abilities to think about the patient. And I do this all the time. I don't share it with the patient unless I'm pretty sure I'm right, and then I share it in a tactful, hopefully, way. But I let my mind go all the time about the patient, who the patient reminds me of, what that word reminds me of, the nonverbal communication of the patient. I try to gather all of these things so I have a deeper sense of the patient, and then I keep them in mind, and sometimes some things bear out to be true, and other things... I misunderstood. And so I wait until I get a sense of what's correct. And sometimes I take a stab at something that seems really illogical. And sometimes it works. But I think you don't want to have, quote, wild analysis where the therapist is going off on a tangent that's completely wrong. But you can't be so constrained that you don't say occasionally surprising things. Mm -hmm. It sounds a lot like the evolutionary process biologically, and you have a chapter titled The Biology of Imagination, mm -hmm. where you mm -hmm. go into how we are innately imaginative and creative, you know, from the cellular level on up. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of nervous about writing this chapter because it's not really my field, but I am fascinated by, like, even the creation of the sperm and the egg. It is incredible. It's very complex. And you can have, I think, something like 64 million different possibilities because when the sperm and the egg, and I hope I'm getting this right, when the sperm and the egg are lining up to create the gamete or the sperm and the egg, when the chromosomes are lining up, they can switch sides. So say you have, just for argument's sake, 10 from the father, 10 from the mother. When they line up, those 10 from the father, a few of them can go over to one side and a few of the mothers can go over to the other side and then it splits in half. So you could have in one egg a lot of chromosomes from the father and not so many from the mother or vice versa. And so you get, and this is one of several times that this kind of randomization takes place in the formation of the egg or the sperm. So of course, no two human beings would ever be the same, but it's provides tremendous variation, and it's like an incredibly ingenious way of doing it. And so I just love that kind of stuff. And also, like immunotherapy, from what I understand, it's not just that the therapy helps while you're taking it. It educates the immune system to keep doing it after the therapy stops. 
so the immune system learns how to fight the cancer. So the body is incredible, and these are not rote processes. They can vary. They're very improvisational. And one writer likened it to jazz musicians, you know, that the body works in a way that's spontaneous, but it also maintains its stability. And so you have this, and this is what I meant by balance. One of the themes of the book is stability and change. Like the body works that way, we remain stable, but our bodies can change in response to environmental circumstances. Many times we repair gene mutations spontaneously. Not always, of course, there are diseases, but many times we do. And the same thing with patients. Patients retain their core personality, but many things around the core can change, so it is a different kind of core personality that's manifested. And so, you know, this is how evolution proceeds, and this is how therapy proceeds. And this is a characteristic of our basic intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, our basic intelligence and the plasticity of our brain. Like, the brain can change and adapt. We used to think it was formed, and then older people wouldn't benefit. This is years ago. Older people wouldn't benefit from therapy because they can't change. But this is patently untrue, we had found out. And I've had people come to me in their late 60s, and, you know, they want to become a doctor or a lawyer, and they do, and they practice and totally change careers. I mean, granted, they are very intelligent, these people, but they can certainly change and adapt and learn. And, you know, even I give an example in the book, this woman that Norman Deutsch discussed, she was born with half a brain, but yet once that half a brain compensated for the part that was, you know, not there, and although she was not, quote, perfectly normal, she could do a great deal. She could joke, she could work, she could, you know, live a life that was, you know, that was satisfying for her. She could even imagine into the future. She said she wanted to go to heaven because she could then be with her parents, but she could eat anything she wanted because she could never gain weight and she didn't need money. And, you know, she could kind of joke like that. So, you know, our brain is capable of a great deal. And the thing about the dream work technique is I think it opens up possibilities and it gets you out of these rigid patterns. I mean, the worst thing about pathology is the rigidity of it. And I read somewhere recently that they felt that an undervalued benefit of psychoanalysis was mental flexibility. And that's also what the dream work gives you, this mental flexibility that you can think of things in new ways and from different perspectives, and you can enter into other perspectives. Well, there's two things now that are on the tip of my tongue. One is how does dream work expand our perspective and, and change the way we see things? And the other mm -hmm. is the difference between our basic intelligence, which is innately imaginative and creative, and our cultural bias towards intellectual intelligence and, mm. and material perspective. Mm. Mm. Which do you want to tackle first? Well, well let's do the, the latter one first, or either way you're inclined. Well, I think we can 
talk about the latter. Ian McGilchrist wrote a wonderful, very encyclopedic book that I think took him years to write called The Master and His Emissary. And it's really how the left brain has overtaken the right brain and dominated the world. And the right brain is the more holistic, intuitive, creative, relational aspect. And the left brain is the more logical, particular, linguistic, rational part. Now, this is an over-exaggeration, but just so we can kind of know the ballpark that we're speaking about, because everything is really an integration of the two. And so our society, and this is also what Bosnick is addressing very much, he wants to bring that imaginative, right-brained, imagistic perspective back and that imagination is not the opposite of reality, but it is a kind of reality. And dream work is a quasi-reality. But yes, our society in general, historically, over the last several centuries, we've been overtaken by an emphasis on the logical. And school is very much like this. And the SATs, it's logical thinking that's rewarded very little about creativity or intuition. And in my view, and in my new projects that I'm doing with my collaborator, Terry Marks Tarlow, the graphic novel about trauma, we're trying to rebalance with a right-brained approach. But yeah, we need to try to create more of a balance and not have it so tilted towards the left brain. And I think, you know, different parts of our society is trying to do this, but I think there's still a lot to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're still heavily biased toward intellectual, mm -hmm. rational knowing and approaches. And it reminds me of the metaphor which you brought up just a moment ago about jazz, mm -hmm. where you really have to do a lot of work and practice to master not only your instrument, but music itself, the musical language, mm -hmm. which takes an intellectual and rote kind of mm -hmm. practice and mastering. Mm -hmm. But then once you've achieved that, you can throw all of that out the window and improvise mm -hmm. freely. Right. But you don't really throw it out the window because it's in your body. Exactly. You don't what, think what, about it. Exactly. That's, that's what it boils down to. You, you no longer have to think about it you're now mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. You're free of the constraints of that. Right, right. And then you're really functioning much more in your right brain capacity, very holistic, imagistic, relational, because you're in relationship either to the music or if it's an ensemble to the other players and so on. But there is stability there too. It's not just new. It's new and old together. Because mm -hmm. you have a solid foundation. Yeah, you have a solid foundation. And you may have some themes that you keep going back to, and then you go off. Right. You have a solid foundation, or you have a theme, and then you take little ventures, little exploratory yeah. tangents to see what's possible. And then you return. Yeah. And, and each right. time you do that, you can then go off on a different exploratory adventure. Right, right. And some are small and some could be leaps, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the moment and the person and the skill and what happened to them that day. 
mm-hmm. you know. So it's interesting. And that happens with doing therapy, too, of course. After years of being trained, you form your own integration, and then you feel free. How does that relate to this term that you call unconscious freedom? Well, that's something I coined, I think. And by that, I mean, you can feel kind of trapped, and many analysts have written about this, with a patient. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and you get an insight. And you're freed from that trap, and you understand what's going on. And that is a wonderful feeling of feeling free. And it happens unconsciously, probably, and then you have an awareness, and you're then able to go back to the patient with more confidence and a feeling of how you can help that patient get out of whatever they're mired in. And they may be mired in it with you unwittingly, and you can get out of it. And I give an example in the book which might illustrate this, is that a patient had been coming to see me and been talking to me about her very cold but weirdly seductive mother, and I felt like this wasn't affecting me. I wasn't really getting it. I wasn't really empathizing with her. I felt myself to be very detached, and I didn't like it, and I didn't know why. And then I had this dream of a mermaid with the head of Joan Crawford. And I woke up in such a cold sweat. And, you know, I, like probably most people, think of her as a very cruel mother from the Mommy Dearest book. And to me, mermaids are always entrancing and very seductive. So this was a perfect condensation of an image of a very seductive, cruel person And when I woke up from this, I totally understood what she was talking about, and I totally felt it. And I felt very able then to be with her in the session and go very deeply into these feelings she had. I understood emotionally what she was going through instead of understanding it intellectually. Intellectual understanding doesn't help anybody in therapy. It doesn't help the therapist. It doesn't help the patient. And that's why left-brained approaches don't work, at least not in psychodynamic psychotherapy. So for the kind of therapy I do, which is psychoanalytically informed, you have to have a deep emotional grasp of what's going on between you and the patient, between you and the patient's material and anxieties and so on. And this dream gave me a deep understanding of what this patient was going through so that when I spoke with her, I felt I could be more present and inquire in a deeper, more empathic and understanding way. You're talking about an embodied experience of that. Yeah, of what the patient was going through so that the more embodied I felt, I felt I could help her get in touch with her embodied experience of her mother. And so we're not just speaking intellectually, like two talking heads, but we're relating emotion to emotion or body to body. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably a perfect lead-in to the way dream work helps open up all of this. Yeah, well, you know, this is a vast subject, but there are a couple of different things. One is the embodied imagination approach, which emphasizes the body, and that's how you 
gain the benefit, but just dream work itself from a scientific point of view, when you're in a dream state, your right brain is totally involved in REM sleep, and you are able to make associations that you can never make when you're awake, and all kinds of censorship is going on. So you're able to make much more distant and unusual connections in the dream state just from the way the brain works in REM sleep. So you mean that the left brain is kind of offline? Yeah, yeah. And the dream researcher, Richard Stickgold, says that the brain is really looking to make unusual connections or new connections in that state. And so there's like a predisposition to something new or creative going on. And you can think about it more easily because you don't have the left brain censoring and, you know, putting brakes on. And then another dream researcher, Mark Lechner, says that this is, he calls it like dream Darwinism, that you can then keep the ideas that have value and discard the ideas that don't. You know, and there are a lot of scientific discoveries that have come from dreams. And these are discoveries that the researchers were very frustrated with when they were awake. They couldn't figure it out, and then they had a dream, and they figured it out. So I don't know how common it is, but there certainly are things like that. And I've, I've had that, too, you know, about patients, where you wake up and you say, oh, my God, that's what it is. So that's just by way of saying, in general, the images and the dreams and the associations they're much easier to make creative associations than the dreams. But in terms of Bosnak, should we discuss that technique or how did you want to proceed? Um, I'm just wondering if there's any other foundational things we should cover to set this upon. Mm. You write in the book about magical thinking and how it is not necessarily mutually exclusive of critical thinking. Hmm. We keep both. And again, in a way, if you want to sort of generalize, the magical thinking arises more from right brain perspective and the logical from the left brain. But we all need an integration of the two to function well, that we can't be created without having both. And we can't have evolution without exploring or making new connections, continually creating new possible connections from which mm -hmm. to draw upon as viable possibilities. Because if we're just in a critical thinking, rational mode, we'll never explore anything new. Right. And that's what I mean by symbols getting worn out, tired, and finally die. Mm -hmm. We have to keep infusing our thinking with new ideas, and then we can decide if they're right or wrong. Or we can decide how to make them more right, develop them further. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's from the unconscious or the right brain, that's the wellspring of new ideas. And then they can be brought out into the open and maybe evaluated and developed. It's like a writer, you know, and I'm always telling my patients who are writing in various capacities, that first draft is just from your unconscious. Don't criticize it, you know, don't squash it. Let it develop, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it, and then down the line you're going to edit it. But you can't superimpose that on your great new ideas. So really critical thinking is meant to 
serve our creative and imaginative way of relating to the world. Right. It's supposed to be the emissary, but it became the master. And that just got very strong and dominant. And critical thinking is very important, but it's not a monolithic thing that we should put on a pedestal all by itself. Right. And it's very easy to squash something creative with critical thinking. And you can do it to yourself. I mean, you don't even need somebody else. Or you can surround yourself with people who are critical, show your, you know, beginning idea to someone, and they can just shoot it down. And, yeah, it's very difficult to combat that. And you have to have the faith in yourself to either discuss it with people who are conducive to your way of thinking until the ideas are strong enough that they can stand up to criticism. Mm -hmm. And I love how in dreams we experience images and, and memories and feelings without all of those usual critical or logical mm -hmm. narratives that yeah. immediately glom onto them or, or try to censor them or control them or, or eclipse them. Right, and that's why dreams are so valuable in therapy, not only for the reason you just said, but many scientists and therapists think that those images are really early memories that we can gain access to through dream work. So there's some form of early memory that we get a chance to kind of work on that otherwise is fairly inaccessible. So it's just a fantastic resource. So let's jump into Embodied Imagination and Robert Bosnak's work. Well, I can give you an example of the first dream I had in this three-year intensive training course I took with him. And we all tell dreams and we all work the dreams and it's like a group setting. It's a lot of trust gets developed in the group which stays together for the whole three years. And I entered the course specifically because I wanted to expand my work with patients, but really also to expand my own creative abilities, which I felt very insecure about because I too had become a victim of the master and his emissary and was too intellectualized. And so I think that's another thing that really appealed to me now that I mention it because you asked me what was there about him. I think it was the appeal to the non-logical side of being that really impressed me. At any rate, this was the first dream I had in that program, and I offered it to be worked by the group. And the dream was I was in a restaurant, and we were all group, and we were going to go somewhere else because the restaurant was dirty. But there was one person, one of my colleagues, said he's not going to go with us because his wife is late and he's going to stay behind. And even in the dream, I was impressed at this guy's ability to just rely on his own point of view and not be influenced by others, that he could break the frame of what we were all doing and just stay there and wait for her and join us later. And then all of a sudden, a man I know asked me to come with him to this playroom in his building where his wife and two kids were. And when we went into the playroom, the wife had her hair in dreadlocks, and they were bright primary colors, the dreadlocks, like red, blue, yellow, and it was like shocking to see this hair 
and I didn't understand it at all. And then the third image was this man asked me to do him a favor and go and get something for him. So I left, and it was dusk, and it was getting dark, and I realized that I didn't have my keys, and I needed my keys to get this thing, and I had to go home then, and I was so exhausted, and I felt underappreciated, and I thought, nobody knows everything I do. So that was the dream. So there are three images that Robbie picked. The first was the man who could break the frame, and I had to feel into his confidence that he doesn't have to go with the crowd, that he can do what he thinks is right, what he needs to do. The second was the dreadlocks and how weird they were. And it was very hard for me to get into this image and the woman and her dreadlocks. And I didn't understand her. And they were like saying, I'm here. I'm colorful. I'm powerful. I'm creative. I'm everything. And so it took me a long time, but I started to giggle and laugh and play with that image. So that was like sort of a crucible of creativity in the symbol for me in the dream. And then the third was what we call habitual consciousness, how I usually saw myself then, which was sort of downtrodden and tired and weary and kind of doing things for others instead of like the man in the first image defining his path. And so I kept repeating those to myself because that's called a composite. You say them forwards and backwards in your mind until they are almost simultaneous. And you practice that for a couple of weeks after the dream work. And that can create new ways of seeing the world. And, you know, the pun in the dream, dreadlocks, like I felt locked into this way of being overworked and tired, yet I at the same time dreaded to change it and try to be more creative. So that was the composite that I practiced. And then that night I had a follow-up dream, which was very interesting to me in terms of symbolism. In the dream, I was in a hotel room and I had triple locked the door because I was afraid of thieves or rapists or whatever. I was frightened and I was locking myself in. But then, all of a sudden, the wall became kind of transparent, and I could put my hand through the wall and unlock the door from the other side very easily. So to put on my interpretive hat, it was like I was locked into this way of being, but I was starting to feel I could be more free and unlock the door and leave. So that was my initial experience in the course. So in embodied imagination, working with these dream images, how do you actually work with them to Mm. embody them and bring them into your being in a way that changes, that creates change within you? Well, yeah, that's the essence of it. That's the art of it, and this is not easy to do, but you have to help the person transit into the image by having them observe the image very carefully. Like, the easiest one would be the downtrodden woman at the end of the dream, because that's how I usually saw myself, so that isn't hard. So you say, you know, what is the environment? Oh, it's getting dark. It's dusk. It's getting darker. 
and you say, how does she feel? Well, she feels very downtrodden. Well, what about her body makes you feel that? Well, she's slouched over, and her face looks haggard. Well, what's haggard? Well, her jaw is dropped, and she's kind of frowning. And how is she walking? Well, she's walking kind of slowly because she's so tired, and she feels weary. What about her makes you think she feels weary? Well, just there's a droopiness to her appearance, and you keep going into the image, and then you say, well, where in her body does she feel the weariness the most? And I might say, well, in her head and her shoulders, that her head is too heavy, and it's leaning over, and her shoulders are slouched. And so I'd say, well, can you feel the weariness of the woman with her heavy head and her slouched shoulders? Can you feel that woman, how weary she feels? And you keep doing that until the person gets into that weary image. And so you try to do that. Now, it's easiest to do with the habitual image because there are two types of images, basically, that you're looking for. One is a habitual image. That's the sameness. See, this is the sameness and the difference or the similarity and the difference or the basic theme, and then the improvisation. You look for the habitual image, but you also look for the alien images, the ones that are different from the habitual image. And that would be the woman with the dreadlocks and the man who can break the frame. And you combine the habitual with the alien images to create a new composite and a new possibility for the person. So you're working with similarity and difference. Yeah. You're working with what is usual for the person and what seems very different to the person. So what's familiar and what may previously have seemed to be outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. And Bosnak believes that you really only learn from the alien intelligences. You don't learn that much from what you already feel. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, but it's not easy necessarily to open oneself up to what is alien. Right, and that's the work of the dream work and the skill of the dream worker that can help you do that as you get more used to doing this work. And I'm very proud to say that our group, our class has stayed together and we continue to meet and work each other's dreams, even though we've all graduated. So you described embodying the experience of the dream image of the downtrodden woman Mm -hmm. aspect of the dream. Could Mm -hmm. you take us through, you know, the embodiment of the image of the woman with the bright, colorful dreadlocks? Well, she was a lot harder for me, and it took a long time for me to get into that image. I mean, this dream work is time-consuming. It takes a long time to do it well. And also, Robbie said to me, it made sense that I didn't understand her because this was alien to me. Because I kept saying, I don't understand her. I don't understand her. So in a way, the more alien, the better. Yeah, it is better. (laughs) It's better. That's like saying the medicine is good for you. But what happened with that image was I kept trying to get into the dreadlocks and I started thinking about my grandson who was, I think, about two and a half at the time, and he was very funny. 
and I kind of was laughing with him. I started talking about him, and it was like he was there, too, because he was very young, and he was not affected by his left brain yet at all. And he was funny, and I told some jokes that he told me, and I started laughing and giggling like I was very young. Because I was sort of in this hypno... Oh, and I didn't mention that you, you're first brought into a hypnagogic state or almost a state of hypnosis at the start of the work. I forgot to mention that. So I was already in this hypnagogic state. And so he came to my mind and some jokes he had just told me and I was bringing them up and that went along with these Crayola-colored dreadlocks. They were like crayons. And it's like, you know a young child playing and drawing and everything. And so I kind of got into this reverie about him and it became easier for me to embody the woman then and the dreadlocks. So that's what happened. And then I finally embodied her. So yeah, at the start of this work, before you begin, you do a relaxation technique with the patient and then you also do a body scan with the patient. And I can just say briefly, the relaxation technique can be many things, but many times it's just counting down from 20 to 10 as if you're going down an elevator or going down the steps to the ocean, that kind of thing. And then from like 9 to 0, you do a body scan where you circle your body to see how you're feeling, just to take note of it but don't change anything. And you do this very slowly. So you bring yourself and the patient into this semi-hypnotic state before they tell the dream. And that makes it easier to enter the images. So you said that this is a long process, working with the dreams. How long do you generally work with each particular set of images? Typically, when we meet as a group, we reserve an hour and a half to work a dream, and maybe the last part of that is our discussion about the work. So I would say you need an hour. I got the impression that it could go on for multiple sessions, or is that just the practice that the patient or the person who's working with the dream does within the context of their own life? You practice the composite after the session, and that goes on for a couple of weeks. Okay. But to form the composite, you do that in a session. Okay, got it. But that practicing is very important, and that is part of the dream work. You're right. I mean, if you don't practice it, you may not form a new network. You may not fully embody the alien Well, message. you have to keep practicing this composite, this group of images, over and over again. You mentally review it for like 20 minutes a day. So talk about how these very disparate elements come together in a kind of a composite or a synthesis and how you're affected by them. And talk about it from the perspective of somebody who has actually done it as you have. Well, it's hard to know how it affects you because it's all implicit. You don't discuss it. You don't put it into words, but you practice it. And you know that it has worked if you break through whatever it is you felt stuck with. You kind of force the integration by practicing, 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 practicing. So whether they want to be married or not, they're forced to be married together. <laughs> but I came into the program wanting to write more, and that started to happen. So 
I started to write plays, which I had always wanted to do and had done once when I was, you know, a young person. I did this book. I'm working on a graphic novel now. I did some poetry that got published. So I feel that you know that it's working if you accomplish what you need to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have a sense that those different elements are actually coming together within your own awareness in the moment, necessarily? Or do you? I think you do, because they get closer and closer together as you practice them. And sometimes you have what's called an emergent phenomenon, where something new comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. And so that's directly out of the composite. And sometimes we ask people right at the end of the session, is there anything that's coming to your mind now? And sometimes people will come up with some image that then leads them in a new direction. So there is an implicit sense that things are happening. But with me, it's more that, like, if I have a block, like I mentioned in the book that I was concerned about writing Chapter 5, and I felt very stuck about the biology of imagination chapter because I really didn't have confidence that this is not my field, although I had ideas. And so I did an embodied imagination work, which I describe in the book, that helped me break through that fear. And then I was able to write the chapter. So this is how I know it works. It's just like if you say something to a patient, you give an interpretation or just a clarification or anything, and nothing comes of it with the patient, then I think you didn't say the right thing. But if you say something and the patient has lots of associations as a result of what you said, then you know you're on target. The same thing with this embodied imagination. If you then are freed up and can do it, then you know it worked. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Leanne Domash. She's a psychotherapist in practice in New York City. She's a playwright and author of this wonderful book we're talking about, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. And you talked about how you work to enter into a kind of liminal or hypnagogic state to do this kind of work mm -hmm. and use the term reverie mm. and you talk about it in relation to the experience of presence. Mm. So how, because, you know, children have often been punished for staring out the window <laughs> and we're often looked down upon if we're staring off. And yet there have been actual scientific mm. studies that demonstrate that children or even adults who engage in that on a regular basis, they have a better ability to self-regulate? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're more able to use their imagination to help them and have fantasy and narratives and daydreams and all that. This is a very key thing in listening to patients. And Freud wrote about it. He called it evenly hovering attention and analysts after him imply it or outright say it, like Antonio Ferro, a kind of very complex writer, and I only understand him a little bit, but he's fascinating to me. And he talks about reverie all the time and how, you know, everything comes out of the state of reverie that you're in with the patient and 
I think I might have mentioned in the book that, for example, like everything the patient says, sort of you have to think of metaphorically, and that helps if you're in a state of reverie. And so a lot of things happen at the very end of the session, whether this is some weird unconscious trick of the patient or that's when it occurs to them, I don't know. But at the very end of the session, he said to me, this was years ago when Bernie Madoff's scandal was rampant, what do you know about Madoff's son killing himself? And that's right before he left. And I thought, hmm, he's brought Bernie Madoff into the field of our session. What is this about? And I kind of, in my reverie, he had had some borderline unethical dealings and behaviors, and I thought he was beginning to want to really address them because of the effect it could have on his family. And he brought it up in this very indirect way, and we were able to then start to work on it. But it was like, you know, it's easier to make those connections if you're in a state of reverie. Again, you don't want to be in a logical framework with a patient. That is not going to help. They're already able to do that, most of them. They understand things in a logical way, and that doesn't make a bit of difference to them in terms of change. Mm -hmm. And I love that notion of looking at our lives as if we're in a dream, kind of looking at our waking reality in symbolic terms, more symbolic terms than quote-unquote literal terms. Yeah, well, this uh, pharaoh believes each session is a dream, <laughs> a waking dream, yes. And so it's an interesting way to look at things, and I think it makes sense, and I think it's a powerful way to work, and it's also a very interesting way to work. Yeah, particularly like if we have difficult challenges in our lives or people in our lives who we're having difficulty with, to look at them or to try to see them in symbolic terms. Yeah, yeah, and that's like a Bosnak thing in a way. You could try to imagine into them and see, you know, what is it driving them? You know, how do they see the world? How do they feel in the world? What's their point of view? In other words, not seeing them as so much as other, but seeing them as if you are them, I think can give you a lot of insight into how to deal with them. Yes. That's a very imaginative process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this happens as you develop, too. Like, say you're a 15-year-old who hates their mother because their mother doesn't seem to care about them and never asks them anything and is always, like, seeming out of it. And then you're 35 and you're in analysis and you slowly grow to realize that your mother was very depressed and she couldn't do any better. And she was emotionally crippled. So you kind of sense into her and how she felt. And that helps you have greater empathy for her and kind of frees you from the hate so you can go on about your life in a more productive way. And Freud talked about this, that as we mature, our memories change and we begin to understand things and see things in the light of our maturing capacities. And so that's an example of that. Like to constantly say she was a terrible mother, she was a terrible mother, is a failure of, of nitrocalcite because you never reconceptualize anything. 
and you remain rigid to this original idea that you formed when you were young before you could understand there was such a thing as depression. But if you can reconceptualize it or reconfigure the memory with more compassion, you know, that's a healthier way to be. And he felt that psychopathology could be summarized as a failure of nitroglycite, a failure to reconceptualize things. Which we could more simply state as a failure of imagination. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to imagine into that mother and what she was feeling and what she went through and maybe her stressors and then maybe remember some positive things she did too and not just let the negative overwhelm you. I mean, again, it's flexibility. It's being able to sense into other images that can free you to be more imaginative. Mm -hmm. And this is very important, like, for people in close relationships. Before getting angry, you can also just try to sense into where is that person coming from? Like, why are they saying that? And what's going on? And how do they feel? And look at their body. And are they in agony right now? Emotional agony? You know, to try to understand what's happening. And if we don't have much information to base that upon, we could actually stop and, and maybe ask them some questions to help inform us. Right. But you can also do it non-verbally, too. You can just look at how tense the body is, the body posture, the look on the face, the color of the skin, how fast they're talking or not talking. You can sense a lot of that just from looking at them. But yes, I mean, it always helps, you know, sure, ask. But I'm just saying, sometimes people don't even know, though. Mm -hmm. I think you have to combine the nonverbal with the verbal all the time. So we have to stop ourselves from mm -hmm. re-entering old patterns of yeah. reaction. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's another thing about imagination, that you have to be flexible about the past. Mm -hmm. And one could say that most, if not all, the problems that we have in this world are based upon our misunderstanding of past events or misinterpretations. Or right. It's when the past is seen as fixed and that it's happening right now as opposed to the past was the past and you may have echoes of it in the present, but it's not the same as the past. It's like, how do you make that distinction? Because there are a lot of things that trigger the past, but they're really not the same as the past. And if we have the response the same traumatic response as the past, you know, we're just reliving our trauma instead of growing and working it through. So there's an irony in our use of imagination in that we often censor our creative imagination, and yet we often don't censor our <laughs> negative use of imagination. Right, right, right. I think that's probably some kind of brain chemistry that's just very ancient and very out for survival. Like when there's danger, that overtakes everything. So I think when something traumatic gets triggered, it's like danger and it just erupts. And it's how do you quiet that to encourage the creative imagination, which would be more flexible. But I think negative emotions rush to the forefront and it does have some kind of ancient evolutionary meaning and survival in the wild. 
But I agree with you. The creative imagination is quieter, and it needs to be encouraged. And that's what also I think is true of the right brain, that the signals are weaker. And so in daytime, they're easier to drown out with noise. And at night, when we're dreaming, we can hear them. That's a really important and interesting thing Mm -hmm. to understand. Yeah. We really need to quiet the left brain so the weaker signals of the right brain can be heard. You can do that, like, as a therapist, if you're in that reverie state, you are quieting the left brain, and you are hopefully enhancing your ability to have more insight about the patient and help the patient have more insight about themselves. That's an interesting thing about your characterization of right brain activity being a much quieter signal. What is it about the differential in that kind of signal strength? Is it really signal strength or is it our capacity to be aware of those signals? I don't know. I'm not sure about the answer to that, but this is what I have seen. But it's a different kind of signal and it's more easily drowned out. Kind of like Mm -hmm. looking up at the Milky Way and if you're in the middle of New York City, you're not going to be able to see it at all. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas out in the woods where there's no lighting, you will be able to see it very easily. Right, right. There's too much interference in New York City. And that's true in our waking state too. Mm -hmm. And this is very hard, like in terms of supervising therapists who are beginning, they're very reluctant or fearful of trying to get into that reverie state because it's not quick, easy answers. And they feel frightened that they won't, quote, help the patient. And so it's kind of an Eastern approach to therapy in general. And it takes a long time to learn it, especially given the society we live in. And I would imagine that there's the added insecurity that you don't know how long it's going to take for something to arise in that state. And in the context of a therapy session, you only have a limited amount of time. Yeah, true. But I think eventually you get to a point where you understand that the only important thing is just to be with the patient. Regardless of what comes up or doesn't come up in the moment? Mm-hmm. You have to allow the atmosphere to be such that something will come up and you have to trust it will eventually come up. It might not come up in that session, but it will come. You have to have faith in your ability to help the patient access these things. So again, going back to our first conversation, you're building space and building Mm -hmm. trust. Oh yeah. That's very important. And You do it as best you can, and each person is different, but you try to do it with each patient. And the ones you can't do it with leave. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when the process works well, that's the foundation of the therapy. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to provide some hope to the patient and help the patient have trust in you and in the process. And that facilitates healing, and it's just like, I mean, there's an analogy to the placebo effect where there are real brain changes in a person who's having a placebo effect. You know, they produce various 
hormones, et cetera, that help them, say, if they're in pain, feel less pain and produce dopamine like Parkinson's disease, which has medications that increase dopamine, so does the placebo effect frequently do that. And some people feel that the benefit from the medications is as much from the placebo effect as from the medications. So the brain can do a lot in response to a good trusting relationship. So a doctor or therapist, quote unquote, bedside manner goes a long way in this. Oh, I think it's very, very important. And again, in our mechanized materialistic world, where unfortunately, people don't have much time and they have to see many patients to satisfy their employer or their hospital complex, many doctors forget about that. Not all, and I I am blessed with having some doctors who definitely understand the importance of that. But, you know, I just know from my experience and those of my patients and my colleagues, that's not always the case. So learning the art of cultivating the placebo effect. Oh, yeah. Very important. Very important. And it's something that really can enhance the response to medication tremendously. Because I think a key element of that is that healing and change come from within the patient, not from the doctor or therapist outside of them, as we tend to misunderstand in our culture. Yeah, but it comes from within them, partly based on that trusting relationship with the doctor. Exactly. Hence the placebo effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like a good parent with a child just facilitates positive development or a good partner, partners with each other facilitate growth and development because, you know, there's a feeling of trust and that allows you to think of interesting new things and you're not on guard, you're not hypervigilant and so on. So it's very growth promoting. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about this collaboration that you're doing with Terry Marks Tarlow. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this is a lot of fun. And she's a wonderful artist and therapist, of course. And we're doing something that has a lot of dreams in it. And one of the characters is in therapy and does embodied imagination in the book. And Terry has been able to capture this visually. So it's really great. And we take two friends who provide this kind of good relationship with each other. See, this is an example of just two close friends that are helping each other. And I don't want to give too much of it away because we're only half done. But it's really the story of trauma and how someone can recover from it. It sounds like an imaginative way of working with trauma or healing trauma. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's like a fable, kind of. It's part fable and part actual reality. And it goes into dreams in different ways. And then she's in therapy and she works through a dream using embodied imagination. And the composite and everything is visually represented and the dream is visually represented. And it's been a lot of fun to work together on this. We've been working on it for a long time and we're only half done And is this in the form of a book? It's a graphic novel. Uh Uh-huh. 
That'll be interesting to read. Yeah, yeah. We're in the process of maybe sending it out now to see what kind of interest we can get in it from agents. And, you know, we've done a lot of work. We've written and rewritten it so many times. And I think it's really solid now. It's interesting, again, how things develop because, you know, it's really evolved over the course of a couple of years. So because this is not a genre that's that well understood or that popular, so you kind of have to create it yourself. Mm -hmm. There is something called graphic medicine, which has a number of books that kind of try to tackle psychological issues, but there aren't that many examples of it. So we've kind of created our own approach. Integrating magical thinking and critical thinking in in a sense. Yes, yes, because we have some real factual information and so on, and we have a lot of fantasy also, and dream world, dream-like things that are going on. So it's, sometimes it's a fable and a fairy tale, almost, and sometimes it's two friends talking to each other. And it reminds me of this wonderful quote that I just discovered in the latest book I'm reading for an interview. It's a quote mm-hmm. from Wittgenstein. It goes like this, Don't, for heaven's sake, be afraid of talking nonsense, but you must pay attention to your nonsense. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There could be a lot more sense in that nonsense than we may first... Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I yeah. mean, that's dream work. Dream work is nonsense that you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And allow sense to arise out of it. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Creating a fertile space within which sense or consciousness can arise out of the unconscious or sense can arise out of nonsense or seeming nonsense. Right, right, right. Definitely. Which is kind of the eternal relationship that we have with life. Mm, How do you mean? Well, it seems like our ongoing lives are continually arising anew out of this dynamic tension between what we know what we've experienced and what we don't know and haven't experienced yet. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Totally, and this is reminding me of my childhood preoccupation with Alice in Wonderland, which was just, I mean, talk about nonsense and sense, and, oh my God, unbelievable. A mixture of it and bewilderment and shaking you up so you think of new things. And I think that's something that I strive for when I talk to patients. I try sometimes to speak to them in a way that doesn't sound completely logical to help shake them up some. I try to phrase things oddly sometimes or give it a twist to kind of inspire them to also give something a twist. I mean, Lewis Carroll was, like, unbelievable in his ability to do that. And, you know, I think we need to learn from poets. And even though we're not poets, we can learn from them how they so skillfully use language to evoke 
feelings and ideas that you may not yet have thought of. Right. Evoking a new kind of embodied experience. Yeah, yeah. And I get a lot of inspiration from poetry, and I think it's amazing. I think it's my favorite art form because it so captures a moment or a feeling. It takes an imaginative approach to reinventing what is or what yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a visual picture many times mm-hmm. that is so compelling. And you don't even know what it means half the time. But it evokes something in you. Right. It evokes a feeling. Mm-hmm. And poetry can help patients, too, a lot by giving them inspiration, by putting into words their feelings. I mentioned in the book about a patient of mine who, when she went to college, she was completely overcome with anxiety and separation anxiety, especially from her family, and she didn't feel really equipped to live on her own, and she put poems all over her walls that said what she felt or soothed what she felt, all kinds of things. You know, some were soothing, some expressed what she felt, and she kind of contained herself that way. Mm -hmm. Reintegrating and using the self-soothing poems almost as a container for her, almost like a therapist. Right. Using those poems to build our own container. Mm -hmm. Right. She built her own container, right, without a therapist, right. And later she went into therapy. And it worked. It's very interesting how art can be so healing and spurring of creativity as well. But, you know, various writers who write about the Holocaust and survivors of the Holocaust describe something called the art of trauma, where even an imaginative act during this time, any kind of imaginative act can help the person survive. And in one article, this young girl, a young teenager, she was on a kind of like a train, a transport train to a camp, and her brother died in her arms from like malnutrition, her younger brother. And she said, instead of getting overcome with grief, she said, I'm going to live one day beyond Hitler. I'm going to live. And indeed, she did live. And when the Russian doctor examined her at liberation, he said, it is a miracle you survived with all the illnesses you have and how thin you are and how malnourished. He he couldn't understand how she survived. And, you know, it was this imagination of I'm I'm going to outdo Hitler. Her imagination kind of saved her. And, you know, these are exceptional people who can have this kind of resilience, but it was her imagination that helped her. And we all have access to that imagination. Yeah, yeah. We have access, and, you know, my book is an attempt to help people access their imagination Mm -hmm. and understand all the different types of imaginations they have within themselves. There's so many varieties of imagination. Of course, countless survivors have used art to help themselves afterwards survive and keep going. Not everyone, of course, can do that, but some people were able to. Using imagination to free ourselves from the kind of tyranny Mm -hmm. of the past. 
Yeah, exactly. Give it shape and overcome it to some extent. Yeah. Turn it back into a more fluid, energetic Mm -hmm. state. Exactly. Turn it back into the kind of clay that you can make a pot out of, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, a block of solid clay that's unworkable. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very interesting. I wrote partly as a result of my work in Embodied Imagination. I wrote a series of plays, all of which related to trauma. And my hope was, aside from entertaining people, was to help people process trauma by giving them the opportunity to have perspective on their problem. In other words, they didn't have the burden of talking about it, but they could identify with a character, and that could help them work through something of their own. And we had talkbacks after each play. It was a discussion with the audience, and people brought up all kinds of personal things that were related to the performance. So it was interesting to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I reflect back on what I've gained from all the literature I've read throughout my life that has quite literally expanded my imagination of, Mm -hmm. of reality, of the world, of my experience. Exactly. Exactly. And therapists, too, would benefit from reading really good literature. Because the kind of nuanced understanding that a really good writer has of character can help us understand patients. Mm-hmm. And the characters, well-developed, mature characters, can model things that mm-hmm. people may not experience in their own day-to-day life. Absolutely. I mean, I remember that as a child, reading about Eleanor Roosevelt or Joan of Arc or these courageous women, I mean, that gave me tremendous inspiration. Mm -hmm. I still remember, you know, thinking about these people. And I remember reading stories in Victorian novels about the dinner table and sort of this wonderful feeling of like a family with dignity sitting around a table. And I used that image when I raised my children. I was thinking of those novels and I imitated it. And I wanted them to learn the art of conversation and things like that. And so you can get so much inspiration from reading. And this is an example of a lack of imagination. There are people who say to me, they never had a role model, and they give that as a reason why they can't do things. And in fact, there are role models throughout history, in many, many novels, everywhere you can find role models. But they're saying in their own immediate family, there wasn't a role model. But you can look beyond your immediate family if you have the imagination to do it. And people who have experienced enough trauma, they don't have that imagination. And that's, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about how trauma constricts the imagination and how we need to become unconstricted to then for example, in this case, find role models. They're everywhere. You're just not seeing them. So again, the power of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just gives you the flexibility to find things and also the hope that you can find things. Mm-hmm. And potentially overcome any challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's to the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And... Again, it's been wonderful to talk with you. 
It's been great to talk to you, Tonio, and I thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much. The book is really wonderful. It's a wonderful model of possibility. Well, thank you. That's what I hope for. And we're talking about this book, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy, Welcome to Wonderland, by my guest, Leanne Domash. What it is, it wouldn't be, and what it wouldn't be, it would. Floated away through the keyhole into the strangest world you've ever seen. It went backwards as well as forwards, and nobody won. Nonsense! And what it wouldn't be, it would. Why, in my world... And I was getting lost in the woods all over again. And to make matters worse, the forest paths around me were as mixed up as I was. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other 